your regularly scheduled program for a special announcement. The United States is headed for an entitlement crisis. Social Security and Medicare are going broke. You are going to have to pay the bill. You are going to have to pay the bill. Welcome to the Debt Dialogues, where you'll learn about the coming entitlement crisis, how it affects you, and what you can do about it. Debt Dialogues. Here's your host, Ayn Rand Institute Fellow, Don Watkins. My guest today is Jagadish Gokhale. Jagadish is a senior fellow at the Cato Institute and the author of, among others, Spending Beyond Our Means, How We Are Bankrupting Future Generations. Jagadish, welcome to the Debt Dialogues. Thank you, John. Good to be with you. So how are we bankrupting future generations? Well, uh, it's a long story. You know, in the 1930s, after a long debate, we launched on a fundamentally different way of um, providing uh, benefits, financing government expenditures, if you will, for specific purposes. And that financial innovation has kind of snowballed uh, and grown and been extended to a larger share of the population who receives support from the government for various reasons, for welfare benefits, for retirement security, for health care, and so on. And the primary financial innovation was uh, to finance these benefits by uh, the government by levying uh, contemporaneously payroll taxes and uh, even other taxes because lots of these benefits are also financed out of uh, the government's general revenues. Um, uh, And so the government essentially launched into what is now known as the pay-as-you-go method of financing benefits for all kinds of uh, individuals and groups in the economy. Uh, uh, This type of benefit provision by the government was, I suppose, a big... Uh, a quantum leap in the uh, expansion of government, in the uh, expansion of uh, the welfare state. And that expansion has continued apace uh, over the last uh, uh, eight decades. Um, the result of this type of, a, of a financing innovation and how government benefits are financed is that it takes money from working generations and transfers money uh, on balance to older generations, retirees uh, uh, specifically. So pay-as-you-go financing inherently involves a resource transfer from younger generations to older generations, um, especially because benefits are concentrated to relatively older individuals and the financing cost is concentrated on workers and relatively younger generations among adults in the economy. Now, if you continue this type of financing forward, you introduce these pay-as-you-go finance programs like Social Security and then in the 1960s, Medicare, and then the prescription drug benefit, and uh, um, uh, now uh, in part Obamacare. Uh, uh, Inherently, what they involve is a transfer of resources from younger to future, but if you keep these programs in place, they are going to transfer resources not just from younger generations among those alive today to older generations alive today, but also inherently uh, they set in 
motion, a process of transferring resources from yet-to-be-born generations to today's uh, generations. So these transfers essentially uh, mean uh, that the government financing of benefits is grazing what I call grazing the fiscal commons of future generations' resources or wealth, if you will. And that process has gone on for now so many decades, and it has grown larger as programs have been added and new benefits have been introduced, uh, that now we uh, uh, have policies in place that in the aggregate, I calculate, will, will involve uh, or are unfunded to the tune of $90 trillion if you look throughout the future. Uh, that may be a stretch for people to believe as to how you can calculate something uh, through the entire future because there's so much uncertainty about that. But even if you limit the time period, the amounts involved are so massive that they will essentially bankrupt future generations. So you're not bankrupt yet. The economy can still function and continues to function. But if you go down this policy path of continually transferring resources from younger and future generations to older generations, you'll be bankrupting uh, or or significantly reducing, if you want to put it that way, the resources of future generations to impoverish them. Uh, and that's essentially what I mean. We are living uh, beyond our means, uh, essentially by borrowing or actually taking resources from younger and future generations to uh, enhance our own well-being. And I think that would surprise a lot of people because although you describe Social Security and Medicare as pay-as-you-go resources being transferred from workers to retirees, if you talk to most people about the future of Social Security, their attitude is, well, I paid for it. I was told that, you know, I'm paying for my benefits and I even get a printout from Social Security saying, in effect, this is, you know, what your tax dollars have bought you in the future. Um, how do you uh, how do you bring those two different views into um, into uh, coherence? Well, uh, there are two responses to that issue. One is, although it's true that uh, today's retirees have paid payroll taxes and other taxes for Medicare, for example, uh, uh, in the past, if you do a accounting exercise to calculate how much taxes they paid and how much benefits they're going to reap, it becomes very clear very soon that the amount of benefits they will uh, they have received uh, to date and the benefits they are projected to receive over their expected lifetimes in the future uh, outweigh the tax contributions they made in the past. And that has been true for successive generations, which is why this unfunded debt is building up. Even though much of it is not seen, not really perceived to be uh, to be in government books, because the government essentially reports its uh, liabilities based on contractual uh, uh, obligations that it has, uh, not its non-contractual obligations, which are what Social Security and Medicare benefits are, uh, commitments to pay these benefits uh, into the future. So that that ex accounting exercise will reveal, in fact, it's, uh, for example, in the Social Security's trustees report for the last decade, they've been reporting these measures as to how much 
past and current generations uh, would receive under current policies by way of benefits and how much they've contributed uh, towards paying those benefits. And for Social Security alone, the difference uh, amounts to $20 trillion. If you just look at all past and all living generations, uh, the balance is they're sure. That is, they're going to receive more than what they paid by the, to the tune of $20 trillion. On the other hand, the Social Security Trust Fund, which is the past accumulation of surpluses is only two and a half, two point eight trillion dollars, which is an order of magnitude smaller than the uh, unfunded liability or obligation to past and current generations. So, um, if you do the accounting exercise and the government does it for you through its Social Security Trustees report, it becomes very clear that uh, that claim that we paid in the past, so what we're getting today is. Uh, what we are owed according to uh, uh, the the law just doesn't hold up. So why does this debt matter? And let me give you two kind of counterexamples that that suggest, according to some, that we shouldn't worry too much about it. And that's that after World War II, we had a a huge debt, more than 100% of GDP, and that Japan today has an enormous GDP ratio. I, I think it's in excess of 200% of GDP, and they seem to be doing fine. Right. So uh, it's uh, not clear what level of debt and what composition of debt uh, can uh, trigger so-called economic slowdowns or economic depressions because financial markets lose confidence in the government's ability to service or pay off that debt. It's not very clear to economists uh, as to how uh, the debt calculus works to uh, either uh, uh, reduce or or completely erode confidence in the government's ability to pay uh, its obligations and therefore trigger an economic uh, collapse. The timing of that is not clear. Uh, When it will occur, if it will occur, and the intensity in which uh, this type of a calamity might occur because of the accumulated uh, explicit and the what I call uh, uh, unfunded obligations on account of non-contractual debt, which is the the short form for that is implicit debt. Um, However, do we really want to find out how large of a debt we can accumulate? The existing unfunded obligations and the current policies seem large enough, and continuing on this policy path is likely to, although we don't know when and we don't know how seriously it will negatively affect uh, the future course of the economy, our productivity, and our well-being. Having said that, there is a sense in which this debt has already affected our well-being. To the extent that we transfer resources from young and future generations towards older generations, it encourages uh, uh, retirees and older generations to consume at a faster rate out of their resources. So if you give an elderly gen, uh, retiree an additional dollar, because this person has a shorter lifetime over which to finance consumption, this person is going to consume at a faster rate out of those resources. So 
transfers of wealth and resources from the future and from younger generations to older generations generally increases the rate of consumption in the economy and therefore will reduce the amount of saving we do uh, out of our total product, out of our gross national product. And lower saving constrains the amount of investment and capital formation that we are engaging in. So these policies, uh, it's one thing to speculate as to the economic calamity that will uh, be forthcoming as a result of accumulating a large, ever larger uh, debt. But in one sense, the calamity is already happening, although it remains unappreciated, because we never see the alternative path of higher capital formation and higher income and higher productivity that would have obtained had we launched on a program of supporting these benefits through pre-funded means, where retirees saved earlier the full amount that they would then receive in, in, by way of these benefits. Because we never see that alternative path, we think that we are fine right now, but actually we are much uh, less well off compared to that alternative path where we would have had a much higher capital stock and therefore workers in the economy would be much more productive. So there's different degrees in which to, uh, in ways to appreciate the word calamity is a very strong word, but actually uh, we need to think about the opportunity lost by engaging in this type of financing of these benefits uh, compared to an alternative way, which is pre-funded, where you save the resources, use them for increasing the national product and productivity, and then use the savings for financing old age and other benefits. Yeah, I think that's a really important point. I just want to reiterate it for people that, you know, th that workers who are saving for their future, that money's going into things like new factories, research and development, new technologies that are that would uh, otherwise make us incredibly more prosperous. And instead, they get moved to the consumption of the elderly. And we just don't know how much better off we could have been. Are there any estimates by economists trying to assess that question of w what our incomes would be in that kind of world? I haven't seen any, although I have a project ongoing right now to get at that question, although admittedly not all of the data that would be required to make such a calculation is available, and whatever is available requires a lot of effort to put together in a shape that will help answer this type of question. So, uh, sorry, I can't help you on that. Um, we're often told that this is no big deal. So you mentioned um, that if we try to assess uh, our unfunded liabilities going future, going forward, it's somewhere in the neighborhood of 90 trillion. Um, we had Lawrence Kotlikoff on an earlier episode who puts the number at somewhere around 205 trillion. But either way, um, we're often told that it's not really a big deal because small changes today can fix the problem. And so for instance, Paul Krugman recently wrote, citing the CBO's recent long-term outlook that quote, stabilizing the ratio of debt to GDP at its current level would require spending cuts and or tax hikes of 1.2% of GDP if we started now or 1.5% of GDP if we waited till 2020. Uh, what do you think of that assessment? Well, I think, first of all, it's a short horizon assessment because the CBO's projections go only through 2039. It's not as though the world comes to an end at 2039. 20, There's still, after we stabilize debt, 
uh, and they're talking about the explicit debt, not necessarily um, the total unfunded obligations. Stabilizing the explicit debt is only part of the story. That 1.2 or 1.5 percent uh, sacrifice out of GDP that uh, the CBO or Paul Krugman are talking about is only to stabilize a part of this debt, but the other part is still going to be growing and accruing interest, and it will be uh, still around in 2039. So I think their story is really a partial story. So you've said a little bit about this, but how, what, how would this play out if we don't change course? So um, maybe you could make a little bit more real to us. What are the kinds of possibilities that happen if we end up in some sort of debt spiral? Because people throw around words like catastrophe and so on, um, but I don't think uh, the average American has a real sense of what that could really look like and, impact, and how it could impact his life or the life of his kids. Right, so uh, this is a very difficult, as I said, you know, predicting future uh, outcomes in international markets um, uh, when uh, many times these outcomes are really uh, very uh, 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 dependent on uh, beliefs about the government's ability to pay or beliefs about what the Fed is going to do or market beliefs about, you know, the effect of uh, adopting different policies, the uh, belief about whether the government's going to be shut down because uh, there's a political strife or disagreement about uh, whether to increase the debt limit. All of these things trigger uh, market uh, uh, turmoil and trigger fear among investors, and then they take actions that will cascade into a unraveling of financial markets and then uh, uh, begin to affect the real economy, uh, create uh, more unemployment, uh, raise interest rates, and so on and so forth. So that type of spiral is very sensitive to uh, how inv investor beliefs and what affects investor beliefs. Small things could trigger a spiral or Maybe no spiral will be triggered for a long period of time. So it's very difficult to make a uh, prediction, and making predictions about these is a hazardous business. The one thing I can say is that, given my calculations and CBO, the CBO calculations, if they actually did it on an uh, on the same basis as me, with the same budget window going forward, let's say uh, through 75 years or through perpetuity, as I uh, prefer to do, would find very similar results. They wouldn't exactly match mine, but they would also come up with a massive overhang of unfunded obligations that somehow or the other we have to pay for. Either we have to pay for them, which means raising taxes on workers, which will again have adverse consequences on the incentive of continue working, um, acquire education, acquire skills, uh, remain in the country as opposed to uh, go abroad for more lucrative opportunities and so on, there's going to be uh, reactions by workers to higher taxes or reduce benefits which will impact uh, beneficiaries, uh, Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid, other beneficiaries adversely and cause uh, economic hardship that way. So there, is a, there are many, many ways in which the unfunded obligations can be resolved uh, that is paid for. And uh, we don't know what policies the governments 
uh, will adopt eventually to pay off those obligations as they come online. Uh, uh, but depending on the types of policies that uh, are taken, and maybe there will be piecemeal adjustments along the way, uh, different groups will be uh, affected differently. So we don't know the full nature and composition of the effects that this overhang of debt will have. It will be a kind of a, an action and reaction between government policies and the private sector's reaction to those policies in the future. But one thing is for sure, we it, it would be better to reform these policies earlier rather than later because the more we delay uh, making the adjustments, the costlier the adjustments will be and therefore the uh, chance of a market turmoil or market collapse uh, would be higher. Isn't this something, though, we could just grow our way out of as the economy becomes more productive? Right. So I looked into this question a while back, and it turns out that uh, the, amount, the, the rate of growth that we would require to grow out of these problems with, with policies unchanged about how much we're paying in benefits and how much we're taxing for them, doesn't quite work out because many of these policies are actually anchored to the uh, growth rate in the economy. For example, Social Security benefits are wage-indexed. The initial benefit you receive upon retirement is based on wage-indexing your past earnings uh, record. And the wage index is the average wage growth, the average wages in the economy, uh, and those are growing over time. So because benefits are wage index, benefits are also growing for every uh, new cohort of beneficiaries. So uh, faster growth, while it will generate more resources in the economy, it will also generate a higher obligation to pay benefits for Social Security uh, as well for Medicaid, Medicare, uh, I think Medicare, not necessarily Medicaid. So um, a faster growth, although it will give us more choices, so faster growth is a good thing, don't get me wrong, but faster growth doesn't necessarily solve this problem fully. And the amount of growth we would require to postpone when we must deal with this problem is much higher than what we could reasonably reasonably expect in the uh, uh, medium or long term. So I'd like to get your thoughts uh, of what we should do, but first, I take it you're not a big fan of recent proposals by people like Senator Elizabeth Warren to expand and increase Social Security payments. No, and I, uh, I think uh, those calls uh, emerge from the increasing uh, uh, perception, I think, that we are still not recovering from the Great Recession as rapidly as we would like to, and so certain groups uh, uh, are not keeping up economically. Uh, compared to their forebears of previous generations, and so we need to improve benefits. Partly it may be just politically motivated because uh, it's election season, and uh, during election season, these other kinds of things people say. Uh, so I'm not a fan, uh, especially given that we're already promising to provide more in benefits than we have the money to pay for in the current policies, and... Uh, it doesn't seem like it's going to be easy to even uh, close the existing financial shortfall, so exacerbating that shortfall doesn't seem like a good idea. So what do you think 
uh, our best options are going forward? Uh, well, there's many dimensions along which that uh, question could be answered. There are both macroeconomic policy issues and microstructural issues with many of the programs that you would have to consider, we should consider. Uh, the macro policies generally uh, involve adopting policies that encourage uh, individuals to uh, make sound economic decisions themselves uh, about uh, remaining, uh, first of all, acquiring education, um, uh, uh, remaining committed to being in the workforce as opposed to being out of the workforce and not working because uh, uh, there are impediments uh, like tax, taxes and so on. Uh, so there are, so on a macro level, we, we need to think about the extent to which we need, we need to either reduce ben our benefit commitments or, or failing that, what are the ways in which we can raise resources without adversely affecting individuals and incentives to remain uh, employed in the workforce uh, and maintain their productivity. So uh, for Social Security, uh, which is a much simpler program uh, compared to Medicare, uh, one might think of uh, things like raising the retirement age because people are living longer, uh, they are spending more time in, in retirement. Uh, so uh, uh, if, if, you, if you have a shortfall of uh, resources to pay for those benefits for a longer retirement period, then maybe uh, we can uh, uh, raise retirement ages uh, also because people are living, living healthier and more active lives at older ages today. So potentially they have work capabilities so they could continue working for longer. Those type of policies would help. But I mean, at some point you have to face up to the fact that if benefit commitments exceed our financial resources, we have to somehow pay them back to uh, uh, be, again, living within our means so that we can preserve some resources for forthcoming generations in order to uh, allow them uh, uh, the prospect of, uh, if not improving over our living standards, then at least not falling below our living standards. Um, uh, there are many other policies, for example, in the disability program. Uh, I'm working on a project that um, uh, considers changing the way we pay beneficiaries. Because right now we pay beneficiaries to stay at home because they have proved to us that they cannot work because of their disabilities. But it turns out many beneficiaries do have residual work capacities. And if we change the benefit structure, this is an example for micro-policy. If we change the benefit structures, uh, we don't pay them to remain idle, but we actually pay them to work if they can at the margin. So that if we, for those who can work, who can uh, be productively engaged in the workforce, we would actually gain by subsidizing their earnings if they uh, work and earn and cut their uh, trust fund funded disability benefit. So a switch from the current trust fund benefit towards a benefit that enhances their earnings if they work would induce many of the beneficiaries who are currently out and 
Larry Summers recently observed, for example, that more American men are in the disability program than are productively engaged in the manufacturing sector. Uh, if you want to engage more of people who can work in the workforce, we need to restructure our policies so that work is encouraged and uh, uh, staying out of the labor force is not turn out to be the preferred uh, choice of uh, many, many adults. Those are just examples. I mean, there's a plethora of ways in which you could restructure our entitlement and other policies to get better, uh, get a better economic performance. So these are obviously difficult issues that take a lot of study and thinking. What are your suggestions for uh, the layman who wants to get a better understanding of where we're headed and what our alternatives are? Uh, well, it's kind of difficult uh, to say because many of the reports that the government itself puts out, and the government puts out some very insightful reports on the current uh, financial situation uh, uh, for the government. Uh, also, many state and local governments put out these comprehensive financial reports that contain a lot of information. But unfortunately, those reports are not um, easy to read and digest. Uh, uh, I would just say, for the lay public, uh, if they want to be educated, someone wants to be educated about the financial condition of the government, try and find literature to read up. Uh, there's no really shortcut to gaining an understanding than really exposing yourself to the types of uh, uh, writings that... Uh, uh, pertain to the financial issues facing our economy today. Um, uh, so uh, think tanks uh, within Washington, D.C., for example, there are many of them on both sides of the, of the political aisle, uh, produce many reports that are uh, uh, intended to cater to the lay public so that we can communicate the policy issues of the day uh, in an easily digestible form. So maybe, uh, and today with uh, information technology, the internet is a ready resource. Uh, there are many, many documents available, many, many reports uh, uh, that are non-government issued, that are not impenetrable and opaque, but are actually designed to educate uh, 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 people who may not be familiar with these issues. My guest today has been Jagadish Gokhale. Jagadish, thank you for being part of the Debt Dialogues. Not at all. My pleasure. Thank you. So I think one major takeaway from this interview is that thinking about issues of government spending and debt, particularly when we're talking about over long term and trying to make predictions about exactly what's going to happen, is incredibly hard. But I think there are some key points we can take away. So one is I think it's important to take seriously the gravity of the situation and two which is the flip side is it's wrong to predict eminent disaster so the fact is that american as a, americans as a population are aging that these programs are on a path that will necessitate huge increases in government spending and that that will need to be financed either through incredibly burdensome new taxes or an ever-growing debt. And it's also important to reiterate that that debt takes an incredibly 
large toll on economic growth and can potentially lead to a real catastrophe. But to go to the flip side, economies and nations are incredibly complex. And just as there are huge negatives that come from something like mounting debt, so there are always the potential for many counteracting positives that can delay those effects, change those effects. And there is also the possibility that changes in law will mitigate or again, push off into the distance some of these effects. So I want to make clear, certainly my view is I don't have a prediction that say in 10 or 20 years, we are going to have a catastrophe. Rather, it's that what we're looking at is a real and important problem that must be addressed because whether it's a catastrophe or whether it just Uh, continues to put burdens on young people and makes them marginally less happy and successful. Neither of those outcomes should be acceptable, that we should be always striving to create the freest, most prosperous world for ourselves, for our children, and that the underlying premise of people who say, well, don't worry about this, we'll be able to make it through with some little tweaks, The underlying premise is always that the welfare state is something that's fundamentally good if only we can make it affordable. Now, as listeners to this podcast know, that is not my view. My view is that these programs have achieved nothing but destruction and that we should really be concerned about the destruction to come. So what then is the value of delving into the specific projections and numbers and so on? Well, I think it's at least twofold. So one is so that we can really appreciate the gravity of the situation and the potential, the potential for there to be immense, enormous consequences, and then to give us time to act, to give us a kind of scale that will allow us to assess what do we have to do and how much time roughly do we have to do it. Um, But the second reason, and this is more polemical, but still important, There are people out there right now fighting to expand the welfare state and demanding that we not pay attention to this real looming problem, which gets worse every single day we don't take action. When you get people like Senator Elizabeth Warren or uh, many of the commentators like Paul Krugman who say, in effect, stick your head in the sand, expand the welfare state, expand the size of government. It's critical to know that all of the rationalizations they give, all of the arguments that this isn't really a problem and so on, they are not based on fact and a realistic assessment of what we do know. They're based on a fantasy that is, in effect, rationalizing a goal that they hold for much deeper reasons. That is, these are people who want to radically expand the power of the state and If the fact that we are on an unsustainable path is an obstacle, well, we just deny that we're on an unsustainable path. But hopefully after this podcast and the others that we've done, you're empowered to fight that. With that, it's time to bring this podcast to a close. To learn more, you can visit endthedebtdraft.com, where, among other things, you can find a free PDF of my book, Roosevelt Care, How Social Security is Sabotaging the Land of Self-Reliance. And for the latest, I encourage you to like our Facebook page, facebook.com slash debt draft, and let the world know that it's time to put an end to entitlement exploitation. See you next time.
Debt Dialogues is property of the Ayn Rand Institute. Its content is intended for private use only.